Hello, world singers. My name is Tyler. And my name is Brooke. And this is Cosmere Conversations. Hello, hello. Welcome back, everyone. We have an episode for you today. This is going to be a big one. Buckle up, put your thinking caps on, <laughs> and get ready for us to dive deep into the Nahel Bond. We will start with some listener feedback from our last episode because we got a lot. That was a... A real humdinger. Yes. <laughs> I just wanted to use that word. A conversation generator, which is awesome. That's the name of the podcast. Last episode, we talked about the epilogue, specifically really diving deep into Teravangian and Odium and the kind of the time shenanigans or memory shenanigans with breath. Clarissa wrote in passionately, Odium-fueled. Yeah. <laughs> she starts by saying... Quote, I haven't quite finished, but this is one of the few podcasts where yelling at my phone isn't sufficient. <laughs> I think that the issue of Hoyd remembering that he was practicing sleight of hand with design, but not remembering her leaving, is a relic of Odium pulling out Hoyd's memory of the conversation a bit too far. He was, from my interpretation, trying to erase Hoyd's suspicion, not mess around with anything more far-reaching. He needs to keep suspicion off of the change in vessels for as long as possible. So he tried to finally pick out that conversation and redo it, but he basically went back to a save point just a bit too early. He put Hoyd back before he was noticed, but didn't realize design had been there or else had no way to bring her back without alerting her. If Odium corrupted any other memories, I would guess that it was either incidental or accidental or an afterthought slash crime of opportunity. His only plan was to fix his error in pushing for information. End quote. Great points all. Yeah, I totally agree with what Clarissa is saying, that it was a mistake of odiums yeah and i think we went on to say that a little bit later in the episode so maybe clarissa hadn't gotten there yet but i think this is exactly right odium slash teravangian is playing around with this power that he has no uh previous experience with versus we compared it to vasher who is very adept at dealing with these types of things and probably does have well we see that he does in Warbreaker have the skills to, as she says, really particularly kind of pull out a specific thread versus Odium here kind of using a hammer and smashing everything. What may have also thrown her off was the way that we were talking about it early before we brought in that conversation right. with the breaths and the memories about like actual manipulation of time versus just a memory maneuver by Odium. Oh, yeah, for I, sure, just memory. Yeah, and I think that what she said about design not being present is super important because changing or manipulating a spren is going to be very different than changing Hoyd's memories because of the way that he had stored them away in the breath. So like if design was part of the equation, I don't think it would have worked at all. I think the only way is that yeah, Hoyd is like isolated. Yeah, she had still been there. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. she would have just been like, what are you talking about? Like, no, this, 
yeah. didn't happen this way and <laughs> you can't change a sprint as easily as odium could change hoid in that situation but i totally agree the whole point is that new odium teravodium does not want to give up the game too early mm -hmm. about the change in shard ownership so thank you clarissa for pointing that out we also had someone who mentioned another popular theory about the ending of rhythm of war this time from jasso yeah jaso silent j also uh yasso but maybe. the theory is basically that when hoyd said this is exactly how i wanted the conversation with odium to go he was being literal and that everything that he wanted actually happened exactly as he wanted it yeah and the argument uh ties this into the you know opening monologue of the epilogue in which hoyd is talking about sleight of hand and illusion and and tying that in with what happens in the epilogue and basically saying that there is an illusion or a sleight of hand happening through hoyd and we as the audience are seeing something that is not what it appears to be well we and odium are seeing sure. something that hoyd wants us to look at his memories stored in breaths mm -hmm. and like focus on that oh how dangerous is that that's the thing but then while we are focused on that the sleight of hand is happening somewhere else and that magic trick is not revealed yet. So we are yeah. in the middle of a magic trick is that basic argument. Very interesting theory. I would highly suggest everyone uh, check out that video and we will link it. And then Courtney also wrote in to say, basically agreeing with us from the last episode, she compares Brandon's writing in this epilogue to uh, the Bioshock video game. And she says, quote, Brandon does that in his writing all the time, but the epilogue was the epitome of this. The one character who knows the real truth and chooses not to reveal it is, in the end, fallible. Amazing. End quote. Which, as you said, is clearly how we interpret the situation that the Hoyd character is fallible, but doesn't imagine himself to be so, and so therefore doesn't like share what's going on with anyone. Thank you so much for reaching out. You are always welcome to reach out to us on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Patreon. We're everywhere. Follow the conversation. Join us. But without further ado, yes, I think that one of the most important relationships in the Stormlight Archive is between Kaladin and Syl. And the growth of Kaladin as a character, the revelations that Syl brings as the you know first friend that we meet and kind of our gateway to this magic universe, figuring out their powers together, Kaladin obviously swearing an ideal every single book in connection with how far yeah. we are in the series. Like Kaladin and Syl's relationship is arguably the backbone of the first part of the Stormlight Archive. It's certainly our biggest window into the Nahel bond, which is what we'll be exploring in this episode. I just want to like highlight the fact that it's taken us to what is this episode 12 of our rhythm of war series and we haven't really even talked about kaladin until now which i think is apropos of the situation where the stormlight archive is moving beyond just kaladin's story and did so earlier but each book is progressively getting 
less and less Kaladin focused. Yeah. Rhythm of War was the least Kaladin focused of the books that we've had so far. I like that trend. I think that it's the perfect way, you know, you you start Game of Thrones with your Stark family and a little bit of John and uh, Bran, you know, climbing up his things and whatnot and Ned. And then that opens up into a wider world where the Game of Thrones is being played and you have all these other characters from different countries and blah, blah, blah. I want the same thing in Stormlight Archive as well, where we start with our Kaladin and that then grows into something much, much broader than just a single individual. But I do think that this relationship and this story of Kaladin at point A, where we meet him, to wherever Kaladin ends up is going to be the focal point of the Stormlight Archive, at least the first half. Uh, No comment on books six through 10. Sure. Part of the reason for that is because it is through Kaladin and Syl's relationship that we begin to understand the greater Nahel bond, what it means to be radiant, what is happening with honor and cultivation. All of these different connections are kind of first seen through what's going on with Kaladin. And a lot of the times it's sadness. Sadness is going on with Kaladin. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. In this book, we hear so many like hints and clues to that add to our understanding of what the Nahal bond is and like really the nature of this bond. For example, quote, you and the others, Pattern said, refer to Shadesmar as the world of the Spren and the physical realm as your world or the real world. That is not true. There are not two worlds, but one. And we are not two peoples, but one. Humans, Spren, two halves, neither complete, end quote. An interesting quote, I think in part, at least because it once again leaves out the singers and the whole other, it's just humans in Spren, but like, what about the singers? I think that this is a great realization, though, coming from Pattern, that the division between the physical world and the cognitive realm is more elusive permeable exactly and the radiants are clearly an example of how permeable it is yeah especially with the way that we are starting to see this bren grow and change Mm -hmm. um in particular sill we start seeing her become much more present in the physical realm and much more cognizant and independent and she has more agency over her appearance yeah, and like even small being like, able to generate color and things like yes, that. Yes. So that her clothing is like now an offset blue right. from her skin tone. Yeah. Or what she used to just be as a whole in whatever form she took, like she wore the kind of short or knee length dress when she was earlier in the books, but it was always described as like the same color from top to bottom. Yeah. And now it's almost like an artist is going back over a sketch and like adding in more detail. So like starts with one shade of blue, but then the more fine tuning that is happening now and Scylla's literally you know, taking form or becoming more real in front of our eyes. Yeah. And we've speculated in the past about a potential Legend of Korra situation in the future of Roshar where the cognitive and physical realms will 
more be more integrated and like meld together possibly another quote that sort of backs up what pattern says there is in regards to Kaladin and Syl and that is quote they were not whole either one without the other end quote so this reiteration of the idea that like the spren and the human sort of need each other and are functioning as two halves of a whole in some way we also have a quote from Rabaniel giving the, you know, much more distant history, uh, a little bit of light in our modern Rasharian world, where she says, quote, I wasn't there when your kind came to our world, speaking about humans. My grandmother, however, always mentioned the smoke. At first, she thought you had strange skin patterns, but that was because so many human faces had been burned or marked by soot from the destruction of the world they left behind. She talked about the way your livestock moaned and cried from their burns, the result of humans surge-binding without oaths, without checks. Of course, that was before any of us understood the surges, before the spren left us for you, before the war started." End quote. So I thought that was just super interesting. One, such a descriptive and poignant passage about the coming of the humans to this new world immediately after this destruction. And then also just like she says that the humans came before anyone understood the surges and before the spren left and like I just think that's fascinating. I want to understand what happened with the humans and how they like rediscovered the surges on this other planet. Because as we've talked about, the surges on Ashen like functioned way differently and were able to be accessed way differently than they are on Rashar. I think it is interesting that this concept of the spren and bonds with singers existed, but their knowledge of the surges did not. Exactly. So it's almost as if the surge binding, as the general term, was being practiced by the humans on Ashen, and then when it was brought by them to the knowledge, was brought by them to Rashar, it was going to be an inevitability that surge binding would become practiced on Rashar as well. But it's interesting that, like, why do the singers not have access to the surges, basically? I mean, they obviously, if they bond with a spren, they change form. And I think that's the caveat, is that they have access to the surges in their forms in their knowledge of the natural world. For example, they've kept the secret of growing food using light and rhythms and music. Yeah, but for... that's not really... Like, they don't... Yeah, they just they, they don't access the surges in the same way, which I find interesting. But I, I guess think that it's that's just a... a side effect of, like, having different biology. I don't know if it's so much a side effect of biology, but... What we mentioned briefly when we were talking about the bondsmiths and this concept of like, if you know that something is possible, for example, on Ashen, the surge binding magic came about because of 
bacteria or microorganisms of some type. Once they are aware of that knowledge, then the exploration is never ending. And it's like they were always going to keep digging down that path. In the same way with once they got to Rashar, they were, the they, the humans, were going to be looking for the surges again and for ways to surge bind. I know, but I want to know surges. why the singers are so different. I think it's because they are accessing the surges of the world, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to use like the broad category here, but they are accessing the surges in different ways. They're using progression. There was a form yeah. that allowed the singers to heal each other. That's progression. That's the surge of progression. They were not surge binders, but they were using the surges in more well, holistic yeah, ways. That depends, like we said in our last episode, about your definition of surge binding. <laughs> of course. but And I'm trying to obviously play around with the definition a little bit. Yeah. But like if we, in this case, are using a restrictive definition of surge binding to like the modern form of what they are doing with the Nahel bond and manipulating the surges, then none of the singers were surge binders, but their forms allowed them to manipulate the surges. And that I think is the key that is unknown about the singer's past. Like, that's what well, we need more about from the singer's perspective. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Relaine. Yes, of course. Yeah, and even Venley and this. Like, obviously, they are surge binders now. So, like, why didn't they do that before? But to your point, maybe they just, like, didn't think about it being possible and they were getting along just fine. Because, remember... Part of what makes up a spren is the thought of beings in the physical realm. So there is an aspect of the humans knew that something was powerful. They thought those thoughts. Mm. And then the spren began to reflect that. And so the spren want to then become the thing. That's that the, an interesting thought. It's like a... Yeah. An Ouroboros, a snake that eats itself type of thing, where they are feeding the spren the kind of knowledge of what they can be and then the spren want that relationship in return and so then they start to become that thing that the humans imagine that they were which is just a long way of saying that this nahel bond is very complicated and is yeah. definitely misunderstood there's a lot that we don't know or don't understand about it yes it's misunderstood not just by us the reader but also by the characters in the books that are talking about the things, sometimes talking about them as if they know it 100% or that they're much more confident than they should be. A character like Hoyd, you know, can probably sound very confident, but I would say even he has a limited understanding of what the Nahel bond is and what it's capable of. Yeah, well, Kalek is the one who's like, I know the truth about the recreants and the Nahel bond. And it scares him in a, a big like, way. And Kalek, what is it? Yeah, What's yeah, let the us truth? Know. Tell me. <laughs> uh, specifically, there is the problem with Ba'edo Mishram that Kalek talks about and how that imprisonment of Ba'edo Mishram impacted every single spren on Rashar, yeah. including the sibling. And so bunch of questions about like what is this Nahel bond what does it mean but and like how is it different now than it was before potentially mm -hmm. i think 
one of the most basic things about the Nahel bond is that there does exist a physical limit to yeah. that bond itself. Which I don't think I realized before Rhythm of War. We get that interlude from Syl's perspective, and she says very clearly and specifically that she can't fly too far in the storm because when she starts getting too far away from Kaladin, she starts forgetting and becoming more windspren or lesser spren light. I think it is really telling that interlude with Syl that a couple of miles seems to be what she references as her physical limit. Now, is that for every spren? Is it different for honor spren? Or is it universal? But then importantly, the limit, the physical distance limit shrinks a whole bunch when the tower protection system gets inverted and the limitations get set on all of our yeah. radiance. And I believe that, as we will talk about shortly, that limitation is really important because as is so often the truth with Brandon's writing, it is where the limits are set, where Brandon actually is like finding the most interest in things and exploring things the most. So when Syl goes from being able to travel a couple of miles away from Kaladin to not being able to go many floors away from Kaladin. I think that that is a key aspect is like the stronger the bond is, the more distance, physical distance Mm. that I think can exist. And the weaker the bond is, the less that is. The only other time that we see this relationship really frayed with Kaladin and Syl is words of radiance when Kaladin is having the self-doubt about Elicar right. and Dalinar and Syl almost leaves. Yeah, but I thought that was like really the only thing that would affect their relationship, right? Would be like the status of the oaths. I did not realize again until this book that there was also this kind of physical restriction put on it, which calls to mind the connection or like the bond that we've been talking about between just people and like their native planet restricting their physical movement and their ability to travel potentially travel off world yes i definitely think that one of the words of brandon when he was comparing or asked to compare the investiture from nalthus to the investiture on rashar is he said that part of what endowment has done with the breath system and the way that it can only be transferred willingly. You have to, you know, if you want to move it, you have to say that you are going to give up this breath, my life to yours, my breath become yours, that type of thing, is that it's not a particularly sticky magic system. It's not bound as much Mm. to Nalthus, whereas Risharian investiture in the form of all the different types of light is very very sticky but very abundant so there's a lot of it available but it can't leave because it's very attached to rishar and so i think that because sil is a manifestation of investiture in that she herself is very sticky and she (laughs) is going to and all spren are going to be limited in their physical mobility at any time 
or place. I don't know if there will ever be a circumstance where Spren are, for example, like able to travel from one side of the planet to the other without their radiant in tow. Sure. Let's talk about this realization that we have over Rhythm of War of how human Syl is becoming. We talked about the color thing and how she's kind of like presenting mm-hmm. herself differently, but it's not just that. It is her actual personality yeah. that is growing and developing, and it is most clearly, I mean, I always fall back on the inside out characters and emotions, you know, those five basic emotions that exist in the inside out world, but Syl is basically, you know, almost all joy and then she's yeah, got a tiny she's very bit, joyish yes and then she's got a tiny bit of anger like hidden behind her but she's like a lot of joy and then just like joy in, spoilers for inside out but just <laughs> you like haven't seen that movie yet. joy in inside out she needs to realize the importance of sadness and grief and loss and as she does so it is shocking to all the characters kaladin including yeah and readers, I will say. <laughs> I felt very much uh, similar to Kaladin and like, Syl, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to be like happy and cute. <laughs> I was definitely like, you need some sadness, girl. You're you're too bubbly. We need to knock you down a couple of nosh. And she obviously has all of that inside of her. That's one of the weird aspects of Spren is that she was a fully developed. We don't actually know what her old night radiant ideal state was at but he was at least third probably fourth maybe fifth we don't know how far up it goes in terms of what ideals he has formed but i think that sill was functionally a fully formed individual that then reverted back and is now only gaining again what she had lost and so that's very different than like a child learning and experiencing things for the first time. I mean, that depends on your uh, your world philosophy. Some would say that that's exactly what we do. We die and then we come back and remember again. Like a reincarnation type of thing. Exactly. You're, you're, uh, so Syl is definitely wanting to have this closer connection with Kaladin because Kaladin is so... He's in a bad spot. Yeah, he's so... He's in a real bad spot at the beginning. Well, really throughout the entire book. When is Kaladin not in a bad spot? He is freezing in combat. He's dealing with post-traumatic stress, as he always has. He has to retire. He's, like, forced to retire by Dalinar. He finds a little bit of solace, momentary solace, with reverting back to a surgeon and still thinks that this is like hey we can do it we can protect people you can be happy with your family and we can still you know be like radiance together that's totally awesome but she goes to dalinar and says like he's still sad and i don't understand why like yeah i I don't know how to help him yes i thought everything was great or at least improving and it doesn't actually seem to be What's wrong? And then she asks Dalinar if he can boost her connection with Kaladin, basically like increase her awareness and to help her better understand. And I don't think that Dalinar says that he can do that, but he was like, even if I could, I don't think that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. It's more of here is something that Dalinar basically like opens up the book to Syl's life, and he was like, didn't you used to have a old Night Radiant? Yeah, he, like, opens the door to empathy. Yes. And kind of shows her, 
or helps her find a similar time or a similar feeling in her past that she can then apply to Kaladin. And uh, she kind of goes on this journey of discovering within herself these memories and emotions that she has stored and hasn't really thought about or accessed in a really long time. And later, way later in the book, she's talking about this process to Kaladin. And she says, quote, I'm a spren, not a human. If I'm thinking like this, does it mean I'm broken? And he says, it means you're alive, end quote. And he he goes on to tell her, like, I think this is good that you're actually thinking about this and feeling it and processing it because that's a much more healthy way to deal with it than just, like, shoving it to the back of your mind and never thinking about it. <laughs> because that is what Kaladin first suggests noticing that she's being a little bit weird and morose yeah. or uh, depressed. He says, basically, you know, forget about it. You know, think about something else. Distract yourself, I believe is his actual phrase that he uses. And then she responds with, quote, is that how you stand it? Knowing everyone is going to die, you just don't think about it? Basically, Kaladin said, refilling his syringe from the wooden water jug, then putting the tip into Tef's mouth and slowly emptying it. Everyone dies eventually. I won't, she said. Spren are immortal, even if you kill them. Someday I'll have to watch you die. What brought this on? Kaladin asked. This isn't like you. Yep, right, of course. Not like me. She plastered a smile on her face. Sorry. End quote. And Kaladin, that scene continues with Kaladin like calling her out and be like, I've put on a lot of fake smiles, girl. Like, that was a bad one. We're gonna keep talking about this. And they're relationship is deepening i think because of what you said which is that empathy that sill had a uplifting quality a hope like quality for kaladin early in the books when he was low you know suicide yeah. bridge four all that time period he needs sill as like the beacon of hope and now their relationship is at a state where they are relying on themselves equally. Syl needs yeah. Kaladin and Kaladin needs Syl. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the the sort of deepening or complication of their relationship that like there's only so long that a a true relationship that is, you know, mutual can rely on one person propping the other one up and that like at some point Kaladin needs to learn how to build coping mechanisms for himself so that he can support himself and then they can both also support each other. Probably one of the most heartbreaking scenes. The most heartbreaking. I'm just going to say it. It is, of course, you know, just every single time. It, we were reading these books and we're like, when is it going to be, Brandon? When are you going to break my heart again? Yeah. It's always there <laughs> in the distant future or just looking at me from the past, just like, you want to be sad? Think about when Tef dies. It's just always there now. Thanks a lot, Brandon Sanderson. But the death of Tef is preceded by the death of his spren. And I think that this is important because the the language that is used really solidifies what every single Radiance spren yeah. bond is like. For them yeah. personally, obviously Teft and his spren Fenderana have a specific 
bond, just like Kaladin and Sills, is more about grief. But all of the different Spren bonds, all everything that is the Nahel bond should be seen in this same way. And when it is lost, it is this painful for all of them. I believe this is also why the flip side of this equation is Maya and mm. Maya's declaration yeah. in Lasting Integrity, which we will talk about in a future episode and have mentioned in the past. But just like these are kind of two sides of the same coin. When you realize what is happening to Teft, you also realize that the reverse happened to Maya. The reverse happened to Syl. Yeah, not really the reverse, but the, the same thing, really, just as you said, on the other side. Yes. Quote, Something ripped inside Teft, something deeper than his own heart, a part of his soul, his being, was torn away. He collapsed immediately, falling near the white spot in the sand that was all that remained of Fenderana. No. No. End quote. Wow. Okay. Sorry let for me, making everybody sad. Cry now. Yeah, exactly. We will be back after 10 minutes of bawling. <laughs> we need to remember that part of what is happening with the Sprenbon is that the individuals have cracks in their spiritual web. They are broken. Right. And the Nahel bond is in part about binding back this person through a sprint, with a sprint. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think it's cracks. really binding it back together. It's more like putting a, a pin or something it's holding the sprint is holding the right. person together <laughs> it's like their their spiritual web is ripped apart by the trauma of whatever they dealt with and the sprint comes in and is like i got this they're doing that spider-man either the new one or the old one whatever one you like where like they're holding two things together and they're just like can't let it go <laughs> you know and they're just like nope this is fine everything's great i mean i think the uh, I like the comparison to that Japanese like philosophy of repairing pottery, which is uh, putting like gold in the cracks. So you can of... very clearly see it, right? Yeah, yeah, and sort of like highlighting those cracks. This and is where it that broke. The, yeah, the broken places become these beautiful places. Yeah, artwork in the brokenness. Yeah, and so then when Fenderana dies, whatever analogy you want to use, whatever metaphor you want to think about it as, it is like all of those little veins of gold that you just mentioned are instantly burned away. And the pot, of course, or, or just, the pottery yeah, is just going to crack and, and fall apart. And so that is what happens to Teth. His death shortly there follows. But the same or a similar experience is happening to Kaladin when he is witnessing his his world fall apart and the feeling that he has is that same type of thing that everything is breaking around him and that he can't control it and that he's all alone in this circumstance the difference of course is that his friend is not dead uh, in this yeah. circumstance <laughs> yeah i mean i think like really the thing to take away from this is just the mm, profound seriousness of this bond that mm -hmm. it really isn't something to be taken lightly where you can just like bond and then break your bond and then like la 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 maybe bond again you know it, it um, does but that it is part of your spirit web yes and that losing your spren or breaking your bond or you know losing your human from the other side is extremely 
serious. Overall, the story of Kaladin in Rhythm of War is both clearly present and also taking a backseat to a lot of the other aspects that we're learning about Shadesmar and Navani and the Fused and all that stuff. Where would you rate Kaladin's journey in this book compared to the other stories? I... (laughs) This is such a loaded question. (laughs) I know. I loaded it for... For a reason, people. There we know what we're doing here. So much like talk and debate and sometimes outright fighting about this on various forums on the interweb. So don't come for us. We're just here to have a conversation. You can come at me. I'm a stone ward. <laughs> Do whatever you want, peeps. I started out this book feeling so excited about Kaladin's storyline. More so than I have ever felt about Kaladin before. I just was really psyched to see him do something different. I thought it was really good that he was, you know, being retired and kind of having to deal with his sort of like addiction to fighting and like figure out what else to do with his life, finally dealing with his PTSD and you know, potentially becoming a surgeon or I just, I feel like we've seen so much of the same from Kaladin, which is always just like beating his head against this, like, I need to save everyone. I need to protect everyone. How can I do it? I can't. It's tearing me apart. Can I kill and (sighs) protect? Yeah, it just... It's good, but it just... I felt like it had run its course and I was so excited to see him do something different. And then the rest of the book goes on to have him do literally the exact same thing over and over and over again. He has the exact same fight with the pursuer like four times. They're exactly the same. And I just found it to be incredibly boring, (laughs) both from a character perspective of like so frustrated that he wasn't like growing in any way, but again, just kept fighting when like clearly you need to be done fighting. (laughs) And then also just in the more literary sense of like, it's extremely repetitive. I think that the biggest aspect that you just mentioned is that his story was going in a different route and that was exciting because of its newness. I really did find the, well, this is not said to Kaladin, but you mentioned how much it applies to Kaladin. It's Teravangian talking to Dalinar and Teravangian says this, quote, as you live now, protecting people isn't your true ideal. If that were the case, you'd surrender. No, your true ideal is never giving up, no matter the cost. You realize the pride in that sentiment? End quote. And while he's talking to Dalinar, I feel like that very 100%. much lines up with Kaladin. Yeah. Like Kaladin is a never give up type of guy. You get knocked down, you get right back up. Right. And then, yeah, it does come to the question of, are you really doing this because you want to protect people or are you doing it because you feel obligated, because you've woven this thing into your identity that now you're the person that protects people. You always have to be the person fighting. And like, is it really coming from that true uh, desire? Yes. And of course, this is what the fourth ideal is all about and why Kaladin is unable to say it, though he knows the words, according to Brandon, at the beginning of the book, he knows the words. He knows that he is ready to say the words. Syl knows that he's like, everyone's going to accept the words. Everything is great. (laughs) He just refuses to do so because I think he is prideful in the way that Teravangian is talking about. He's like, you literally 
cannot do anything else because you've woven it into your identity of I'm going to protect, I'm going to fight, and I will never give up. That got him through a lot of his life and got him through a lot of the difficulties in his life. It seemed like this path that he was on with the, we'll call it like the mental health provider Mm -hmm. uh, was really great for him. And I thought there was a lot of interesting. I loved it so much because like at the very beginning of this book, you know, I get a little bit of the ways in everyone obviously is having issues. (laughs) And I, for a second, just like put the book down and was just like, God, these people really need some mental health professionals. Like, where are the psychologists on Rashar? Because this is getting ridiculous. And then shortly after that, Kaladin sort of goes on to like start the very beginnings of some mental health reform on Rashar. And I was just like, oh, perfect. Someone heard me. And I love that. You know, he and Teft, who stays behind with him, are looking after Norrell and they find the many people who either because of trauma in general or because of actual being in combat over the last several years are all dealing with various states of mental I don't even want to say disease necessarily it's just like mental trauma and some of them have progressed to the state where there is definitely something that we would label in our modern world as a disease or a syndrome or something but I really liked that exploration and I think that the even like the things that he is doing a like getting them outside yeah and like getting them into fresh air Mm -hmm. they're going on walks they're doing and just like being in a group yes group conversations and group therapy they were like isolated in the monastery Mm -hmm. or whatever and he's like no they need to be like around people they need to yeah exactly to have a group of people that they can feel supported by and that they can empathize with and you know other people to say yeah i feel that too you're not alone they're even using animal therapy which is often don't they go they like go to see the horses or something exactly but like even in our modern world if you tell someone like oh i'm going to do some animal therapy like it's normally a joke like or people don't perceive (laughs) it as highly yeah obviously dealing with mental health has always been problematic for (laughs) society a lot of people not even one generation you go like back like 10 years and they're like you're seeing a therapist what are you crazy (laughs) or like the crazy woman or hysteria you can go back oh my gosh don't even get me started on hysteria so even in our modern world the idea of taking care of yourself and taking care of your mental health has always been frowned upon or looked down upon so much of our society is you know pick yourself up, you know, just ignore it. Yeah, Distract dust yourself, yourself off and yeah. try again. And so I really liked up until part two yeah. of Kaladin's story when yeah. it seemed like he was going in a different direction. And then you actually mentioned that there may still be a way where Kaladin could be engaged in physical combat too. Yes, I love this idea so much. I am like 100% about it. This is uh, the last conversation that Adolin and Kaladin have before Adolin goes to the cognitive realm. He says, quote, let's find a chance to spar together again, all right? 
I want you to see what I see in duels. It's not about hurting others. It's about being your best, end quote. And I just, my dream, my ultimate dream for Kaladin is for him to be a like surgeon slash mental health professional by day and then a duelist on the side and to just like spar with Adolin and be able to, you know, continue his his true love for the the physical activity of like spear fighting and combat in quotes, but without that pressure of like death and people dying and like all of the pressure of needing to protect your squad and like not get other people hurt. So take that whole thing out of it and just let him, you know, exercise and like have some fun. So I feel like we were given this path that Kaladin could go down and it was like all right there. So inspiring. Yeah, it was exactly what you just said, you know, surgeon, duelist, mental health advocate. Like that was the happy path for Kaladin. I was so excited. I was just like 100%. I could read a whole book about Kaladin in that way. (laughs) And then- And that's the opposite of what I got. (laughs) The fuse invade the tower. Kaladin tries to hide for a little bit. Tef's life is threatened, or he believes Tef's life is threatened, and Sill lands on his shoulder, and he just says, it was a nice dream, wasn't it? And she's like, yeah, it was. That's not the way we're going to go, though. I know. <laughs> I, but, and like, I understand your frustration because it's there and it's so beautiful. And this is where I picked back up on Kaladin's story, or like what I thought of as Kaladin's story, because that was the dream. That is what is possible for Kaladin. He can have that great life. It would be so wonderful if that was the Kaladin that we got to experience. But that's not what's going to happen to Kaladin. And that's not his path. And Well, it still could be. I, I don't think it can be. I, I think that what Kaladin experiences in that moment when he's in his father's surgery room, the fuse come in to take Teft, and he kills the fused, and he tells his father, I tried to explain it. Your son died long ago. This is not the, the way that this person, this Kaladin, is going forward is to follow the path of the Windrunners And that is a different path than the one we just highlighted. I don't think that's true, though, because we have previously highlighted all the ways in which he can still be a Windrunner and protect without being an active combatant. Yes, I agree that it's not impossible for anyone. Yeah. It's not even impossible for a version of Kaladin. Yeah, and like as we've talked about, the cool thing about this magic system is that there are so many different ways to be a Windrunner or Lightweaver or Edge Dancer. And like, even though we have only seen one specific way to be a Windrunner, I think there are multiple ways. And I think that you are correct for the general windrunner let me rephrase i think that this is kind of the difference between like why certain radiants stop at different ideals some never get to the fifth some never get to the fourth some never even get to the third like the path that we just laid out what we just talked about i think is kaladin stopping at the third ideal 
not because he couldn't progress. So what do you think in the future? He is just going to be back in the army and 100%. just be fighting again? Yep. Abso-freaking-lutely. I would Cal- be really disappointed in that and honestly would like completely lose interest in Kaladin. And I don't have that much interest in him right now. <laughs> I think that this is... I think that would be a huge mistake, especially in terms of character development. I think it's what is necessary for this character like on unless i mean i guess maybe he's just gonna die in book five i would be fine with that i think that that is a possibility he can for show die (laughs) i no i think because if it goes the way that you're saying like sacrifice becomes more yeah his character development is over like he can't grow if that is his path and so there's there's still a fifth so there's no point in having him in the book like Okay, if that's where he stops them, fine, dead. Like, why am I going to follow this character when he's not changing or growing at all? I think that it definitely ups the likelihood of a sacrificial death for Kaladin if he continues down the path that I believe has now been set. But, like, that's the moment that I think it is set. Either Kaladin is going to die or he is going to progress down the Windrunner ideals. And by the end of the book, that's what we get. We get the fourth ideal from Kaladin, which these are the exact words, quote, I accept that there will be those I cannot protect. The manner in which Kaladin swears the fourth ideal is super interesting. And I think important overall for like our understanding of what it means to be those upper echelons of any radiant order. But someone else pointed out that Windrunners in the past are one of the two most military-inclined mm-hmm. orders, Stone Wards and the Windrunners, and that in a military setting, you have what Kaladin is dealing with in the early books, which is fighting, protecting, can you kill, and still protect, but at a certain point in a person's military development there has to be a change from tactician to strategist what i mean by that is that at a certain point you have to take the big picture in mind right and kaladin would never be able to become a strategist he would always be focused on his little bridge four the relationships the troops on the ground like that's he's a great lieutenant or someone who's like always operating in the field but if he ever is going to progress to a more leadership role like to actually lead means that you are going to fail people like that's what every president has ever said that's what every king has ever said it's just like this position sucks because no matter what i do people lose people are angry with me I try to do my best, but it doesn't matter. There's always losers in every decision that I make. In a military setting, losing often means death. And Kaladin's fourth ideal is about accepting that I cannot protect everyone, that there are going to be people who die because of the decisions that I make, that there are going to be lots and lots of pain because of the decisions that I make. And... I think that that is hugely significant when it's tied with what happens around the swearing of his fourth ideal. So just very quickly, the kind of ABCs of what happens is 
Tef dies. Kaladin watches it, goes real, real crazy mad very quickly. Yeah, and that, I don't think we actually put anything in here about that particular scene, but there's some super interesting imagery that happens in that scene. Maybe we'll talk about that on a bonus episode for the Patreon or something. He kills the pursuer in a rage, literally rips off the pursuer's head. Very gory. By using adhesion, which we'll segue into next. He flies to the top of the tower because one of the fused has grabbed his father and taken him up there. He doesn't have gravitation, so he's using like the little handheld device. Yeah, his Fabriol. Yeah. So he flies up to the tower using the device and his father drops. Kaladin's like, I can't save him because I don't have gravitation and I can't, you know, manipulate this glove to go rescue someone like that. So he's like, I've lost Teft. I've, you know, killed a fused in just absolute rage. And now I've lost my father. Everything is over. And then he jumps from the tower to commit suicide. He wants to die in that moment. And then very quickly, in like rapid succession, a bunch of stuff happens. Dalinar is flying on the storm. And Dalinar gets a message from the Stormfather like, hey, our boy is uh, killing himself right now, like falling to his death. And Dalinar's like, you need to give him more time. So the Stormfather takes Kaladin out of time. They phrase it something like between worlds or between yeah. time or something like that. But basically, Kaladin's like, experiencing time very slowly as he falls. Yeah. The Stormfather is like, Honor wouldn't do this. You need to be better. Blah, blah. <laughs> Kaladin's like, I want to die. And then Dalinar comes in and he's like, I need you, boy. Like, you are real great and I love you. And Kaladin's like, I want to die. And then Dalinar uses his bondsmith powers to show Kaladin a vision of Tien. And as always, it is Tien that I think brings that Kaladin back. I... I just want to press on this idea that it is a vision that Dalinar shows him. And I just want to introduce the idea that Dalinar may be uh, doing some type of spiritual adhesion and giving Kaladin access to the spiritual realm where kind he of is a ghost? actually talking to the soul or the essence of Tien and that this is not actually a vision. I like that But better. it's a real thing that is happening with some type of spiritual connection. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that better because it would even more strongly signify the thing that Kaladin most needs to understand coming from the person that he feels he failed the most, which is yeah. Tien. And if it yeah. was not just a vision, but an actual spiritual connection then that would be more impactful. That's what I think. I think that it it is Tien. I just I don't know how Dalinar would create that vision. He doesn't know the story of Kaladin and Tien uh to the amount of detail that is offered in the vision, particularly because it's mostly from like Tien's perspective, sort of, you know, where Kaladin is in the vision in a place where he was not in real life and would have no memory of. Um, and then Tien kind of can be compared to Maya in what he says, which is like, I had a choice, mm-hmm. basically, and I was not a victim that was 
I mean, he was a victim. He was a child who was mowed down on the field of battle. But (laughs) he also chose to stand there with those other boys. He tells Kaladin to like to give them strength, to protect them, to show them that they weren't alone, even in death, and that there is like a power and an agency in that that Kaladin doesn't need to feel sorry for. And I think that that is what solidifies the fourth ideal. Obviously, that fourth ideal also comes with the associated power boost. And now finally, Kaladin's ability to summon his windspread honor at will, which was a long-running theory, kind of softly confirmed in Oathbringer, but now is definitely... I feel like he didn't even summon it. He just, like, attracted it. Well, I think they were always (laughs) there. Because Brandon has said that going forward, Kaladin's windspread armor are literally always present yeah and can be manifested as armor instantaneously right but they're like always around him and so i think when we had those moments of like windspread zipping by kaladin when he's flying through the storms that's when he is summoning them and then they've just been hanging out this entire time mm, yeah and like those are his windspread in the same way that sill is his honor spren yeah and so now he has like a little crew, bunch of squire windspread, just following him around all the time. But he can send those windspread out to form his armor around other people as well. Which is super cool. We haven't seen that before it with is shard first, plates. Yeah, first type of power move that we've seen there fits really well with the I will protect of just like, here, here's some armor that you can wear, basically. Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if... Like, Windrunners are the only ones that can do that because of their protecting ideal. Yeah, it definitely seems like a um, ability that would be heavily used by the Windrunners because they also have all the squires, or they have more squires than yeah. everyone else. So it would be like, okay, you are going to go out and lead the squires. I will give you my armor to aid in that leadership role. Like, I think that would be a cool way to see things go in the future. But... What I really found beautiful about Kaladin's swearing of the fourth ideal with Tien, with his father, with Dalinar and the Storm Father, and Sill all wrapped up into one is that Liren has been explaining or trying to teach the ideals to Kaladin for his entire life. Every time we go to a flashback with Liren, he is teaching Kaladin. Liren one of- is very wise. I know there's a lot of Liren hate on the internet, but he's got a lot of good things to say. And I think that it might have something to do with a possible theory we'll mention in a moment. But Liren, you know, goes through the basics of surgery and medicine. That's definitely like life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. That's like to a T. First ideal definitely lines up with you know, the surgeon's Hippocratic Oath and all that type of stuff. But then you go further and the second ideal is I will protect those who cannot protect themselves. Definitely, Liren is doing that all the time. The townspeople he's protecting, the, you know, individuals that come into his clinic, we'll call it. But the third ideal, I will protect those I hate so long as it is Mm. right. Like his dad is helping the city lord Rashon, even though Rashon is literally starving his family. Well, and even like all the other townspeople. Kaladin is always like, why are you so nice to them when like everyone hates you? Exactly. And Liren's just like, because it's the right thing to do. And then 
I will accept that there are those I cannot protect is all that Lyrne has been yeah. teaching him this book and in the flashbacks. Well, yeah, like forever is always like, look, people are going to die. Sometimes there's nothing you can do. Yeah. And like you, you just... think too much with your heart, not yeah, your yeah, head. Yeah. Be like, you need both. We talked about that quote previously. How yeah. like, passion needs the mind to like guide it. And you need both things. And has the fifth ideal been staring us in the face the whole time like everything else maybe <laughs> or maybe it will be shown in uh, another flashback but like yeah if Liren is talking there's a good chance that that's going to come into play in what the ideal that Kaladin is going to say next is speaking of sons and fathers <laughs> let's talk about this whole son of Tanavast business because more than once in almost every book there has been a reference to Son of Tanavast. Yeah, Kaladin is called the Son of Tanavast many times throughout the books. I think at least once in each book. And Brandon has confirmed that this is something different and special versus the more common Son of Honor, which is said to kind of any human. Mm -hmm. Whereas Kaladin is really the only person that we have heard being called Son of Tanavast. Actually, until this book, in Rhythm of War, Taravangian calls Dalinar Son of Tanavast, which is the first time that anyone else has been called by that name. And I think it is just like kind of head scratching and like curious that Taravangian says this to Dalinar. And like, I'm not really clear what that means, if it means anything. But we have this son of Tanavast that's leading to many, many speculations and theories about what this means, what it could mean, why and how is it different than son of honor. Obviously, honor is a shard. Tanavast is the vessel. Yeah. If everyone generally who follows the path of honor is a son of honor or a daughter of honor, and there's only maybe a few people who are sons of Tanavast, does that mean that we're talking about literal biological offspring? I think that is the general speculation on the internet. And then I want to sort of add a little salt on top of this Tanavast meal and just mention all of the things that Moash says in Rhythm of War about Kaladin being, like, unable to be killed. Like, in combat, Kaladin can't be killed. Yeah, like, he says multiple times, Kaladin can't be killed. Like, don't try. Which is why he tries, he and Odium tried to get Kaladin to, to commit suicide. To kill himself. Yeah. Because yeah. Like, you... So, I, like, maybe that's just Moash being, you know, stupid Moash. and dramatic. Yeah. But I do just wonder if there is something to that if Kaladin has some kind of divine protection or specialness? There are a couple of thoughts that go along with this. For example, Dalinar notices and remarks on the fact that the Stormfather specifically asks about Kaladin after the failure at Kolinar in Oathbringer. Oh. And to me, that like sent off another warning bell. Stormfather also is one of the main people who calls Kaladin the son of Tanavas. Right. And so I am curious if there's actually, we, we need to do more divisions of what the Stormfather is. We've talked about this previously, <laughs> but what if it's not 
the Stormfather Spren that is interested in Kaladin being the son of Tanavast, what if it is the power and cognitive shadow of Tanavast that is now in the Stormfather? Because remember, the Stormfather is a bunch of different things in one, and... There's the Spren that's a Stormfather, probably doesn't care about like the offspring of anybody. But if Tanavas had actual biological children and Kaladin was the actual descendant of those children, then maybe the Cognitive Shadow remembers that and is like, I'm checking in on my one and only offspring. Tell me about my bloodline. (laughs) (laughs) But then this, of course, begs the question of did Tanavas the Vessel have children on Rashar? Are there descendants of those children? Maybe Dalinar, maybe Kaladin, maybe other people that we don't know. Yeah. And does that give them some type of special power, special connection, special... Uh, are they more likely to be Radiants? Are they always Windrunners? Is there something like that? You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And so there's a bunch of speculation about what it means to be called the son of Tanavas. We don't have answers. We don't have answers. There's an extremely interesting theory or at least i find it very intriguing that has to do with the moon story and like the moon child myth but we are going- that hoyd uh tells in oathbringer and we're gonna do a whole an entire episode about all of the folklore in the stormlight archive after we're done with our rhythm of war series so just know that that's coming and we'll talk about that more at that time So I have a theory that's kind of a mashup of all the different stuff we've been talking about, but (laughs) it's wild and crazy. Yeah. yeah, Wild and crazy kids. (laughs) Buckle up, put on your thinking caps, because here we go. If, if we are saying that there are actual sons of Tanavas, that the vessel Tanavas had children and that they are now in the human population. That means that Tanavas had to get it on, Zeus-style, with some humans. I mean, could Tanavast and Cultivation... Have a child? Yeah, have we had know that they did. human children? They had, they had a child, the sibling. No, I mean humans. I know. But I think that that is like the example of Cultivation and Honor having a child is the sibling. I think hmm. that this is why you got to take it Zeus style. Got it. And what if Tanavas came up with a plan, a plan to defeat Odium, to basically put a Hercules out into Rishar? And this could be compared to how Laris came up with a plan to defeat Ati and devised a situation mm-hmm. for the long haul. Sure, to like get around their yes. accommodation. So Tanavas has a human child in plans that hopefully one day that human child will help defeat Odium. Lyran and Kaladin and that bloodline are descendants. Who says that has to be Lyran? Maybe it could be it's from, yeah, Hasina's side. Hasina is tied Hesina? to Asadon too. And I'm very weird about that whole bloodline and how that's connected. Yeah. So, I mean, Hasina just seems special. Well, Lyran, because of all the things we just talked about and how he's like basically a windrunner but hasn't sworn the ideals... Like he's literally teaching the ideals, but without saying them or having a spring. Yeah. So that's why I said Laren. But I totally I know, think I'm it could be Hasina too. Um, you have the whole thing about like honor is not dead as long as he lives in the hearts of men. Be like, what if there are some people who carry a bit of honor 
more like the blood of Tanavast. And like Liren, they are out there teaching the ideals because it's like ingrained in their bloodline or something that they have to share. <laughs> Anyways, so Kaladin, through one or both of his parents, is the descendant of that bloodline. But that comes with a caveat. If Honor went behind Cultivation's back to go diddle-daddle with some humans, <laughs> that would be a violation of their romantic bonds, the promises that he made to Cultivation. I would think of it more as like, like you said, comparing it to Laris and Ati, Laris in doing what he does to get around their agreement sort of weakens himself. That it would be more of that type of thing. Like, well, he made a child, but then that's like some of his power that's been siphoned into this human line. And therefore he is now weaker and more susceptible to odium's attacks well i think that that's the key is that he is weakened i am then making another connection to what we've talked about when it comes to odium a whole bunch of times which is that shards don't seem to be able to break promises mm -hmm. and so in the greek mythology when zeus cheats on hera hera just keeps on like allowing that she gets mad and sometimes takes revenge and whatnot but yeah. in this realm like you can't commit infidelity you cannot break a promise, if you are shards, to one another. That's what Odium is so afraid of. So if Cultivation and Honor had a romantic falling out, if there was some infidelity, even if he thought it was for a good reason, but if there was some infidelity by Honor and that broke apart the bond between Honor and Cultivation, that there or is the weakness. Or just like, that would be him not living in alignment with his exactly. shards intent and then that so, starts like, the process okay, but then i don't even feelings. know i don't even know if he would be able to do that i like, don't know either yeah are they able to act outside of their shardic intents i don't know and like if they are then to what extent and the whole aspect is what you mentioned though about creating a weakness a weakness could have existed. This is why there's so much talk about honor, like almost becoming psychotic in his yeah. trying to hold to the codes and not doing what is right or healthy, but like becoming an unhealthy version of himself. What if he violated his own moral principles or his own honor, or he violated some promise that he made to cultivation and that began the process of honor weakening, which then Odium took advantage of and eventually splintered and killed Tanavast and the Shard. That is my craziest connection that we have for today. I'm going to save all of my cool moon theories for later. Now we're going to go to another one of the hot topics from Rhythm of War, which is adhesion. Quote, honor's truest surge. What does that mean? Why? WTF. Yeah. Why? When? How? Who? What? The who we think is honor, <laughs> but we don't even know at this point. Yeah. Because we have multiple beings. We have the sibling and we have Rabaniel, each who comment specifically on adhesion and it being honor's truest surge. Right. We have several examples of adhesion seeming to act differently to those limits 
that we talked about being set in the tower. We have maybe some big speculation about what are the surges, how many of them are there, and how do they all connect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's try to go things one at a time and try to keep it pretty tight to explaining this and giving some light theories, but let's not go too crazy because there's a lot. At this point, there's a a lot of speculation about what this means. And the, (laughs) the simple answer is, we don't know because this is a newly introduced mystery by Brandon. Yes. And so it's not even something that we can be like, well, in Words of Radiance, there's this. And then Oathbringer, we see some progression and blah, blah, blah. We have nothing. This is just like these couple of quotes and a little bit of speculation leads the internet to run a wild. <laughs> and run a wild it has. Let's start with uh, this quote from Raboniel. Venley asks, quote, but I thought there were 10? That is human talk, Rabaniel said to derision. They claim a tenth, of honor alone. Adhesion is not a true surge, but a lie that was presented to us as one. True surges are of both honor and cultivation. Cultivation for life, honor to make the surge into natural law. Things must fall to the ground, so they created surges to make it happen. End quote. Now we have this quote from Rabaniel that just like, sends us off on a different direction. Yeah, totally, you know, yeah, lays out that adhesion is actually not a surge, even though it is used as a surge in the Knight's Radiant sort of uh, continuum. Yeah, I mean, everything about Voron philosophy is 10. There's 10, you know, big planets. There's like all of this stuff around 10. And in this quote, she's, she's explaining why there's only nine types of fused. It's because they don't use adhesion because it's this lie of a surge so none of the fused have access to adhesion which we believe is important and meaningful but brandon has said that all of the surges are a manifestation of both cultivation and honor right and that seems to align with what rabaniel is saying that it's of both of them Mm -hmm. and if it's not of both of them then it's not a surge now, Brandon didn't go that far. He's not right. agreeing with Rubaniel. <laughs> That's Rubaniel's perspective. Exactly. So he he's just remarking on the surges generally on Rashar are of both honor and cultivation and that there is a percentage breakdown. It's not 50-50 for each one. Right, exactly. That is important to note that there are certain surges that are more of cultivation and there are certain surges that are more of honor. But there is a combination of the two theoretically, again, as far as we know from what we've been told so far. So when it comes to adhesion, well, let's just go very quickly down the Windrunner set list, the Windrunner power list, because they have the basic lashing, the full lashing, and the reverse lashing Mm -hmm. is how it's normally described. Of course, we know that this is two surges often working in conjunction. The basic lashing is not working at all in the tower during the invasion, Mm -hmm. which means that it's fully of gravitation, or at least mainly of gravitation. Sure, because we have this second quote from the sibling, quote, But there is one other, a man. He must be of the fourth ideal, but he has no armor, so maybe of the third, but close to the fourth? Perhaps it is something about his closeness to my father and his closeness to the surge of adhesion that keeps him conscious. His power is that of bonds, 
end quote. So the sibling confirms that Kaladin is able to use the surge of adhesion only in this circumstance. And she says that he has a closeness to her father. Honor. honor, Which could be leading back to the theory about the son of Tanavast. So a basic lashing doesn't work because it's mainly of gravitation. A full lashing does work. And this is also one of the most common lashings uh, that Kaladin and Windrunners can use. Even the Spren use this one. This is like to play jokes on people. They'll stick things to walls or whatnot or make their shoe stick on the ground as they're walking. See Lopin. Yes. Lopin uses it uh, in the most hilarious of fashions. But then there is, importantly, the reverse lashing, which is a combination of both gravitation and adhesion. It is highly intent-focused, and it deals with infusing one object and then making that object the center of gravity for other objects. Most famously, Kaladin uses this to draw in arrows to the shield that he is carrying all the way back in Way of Kings, barely even understanding the power, and he has done virtually no exploration of his powers up until we get into yeah. Rhythm of War, which is just a whole other thing about, like, we need Zigzal in here just, like, training these people a little bit better. <laughs> because How do you not know all Getting of your some, powers? Yeah, like, organization and training. But you could say the same about Shallan and all the different Radiants are, like, first yeah. they specialize in one, then they get a little bit better with the other. So Kaladin was less great with both his reverse lashings and even his full lashings. We originally see all of these i think as very similar that they're all kind of like gravity what i think now after rhythm of war is that adhesion might be this very weird thing that has more to do with the way that dalinar's bondsmith powers uses adhesion which is that spiritual adhesion or that spiritual bonding hmm, yeah maybe i kind of think that spiritual adhesion is like a bondsmith thing but maybe maybe not the reason that i bring up that kind of spiritual connection is because of this description from the 17th shard about reverse lashings and like what is the actual thing that is happening here's what they say quote a windrunner can create a bubble around a surface that imitates its spiritual link to the ground beneath it in effect this makes the infused object pull other objects towards itself End quote. That idea of manipulating something spiritual link is what the adhesion bond seems to be doing more than just like changing gravity. It's almost like a soul stamp from Mm -hmm. cell where it's changing the way that an object and other objects around it interpret and their spiritual link to one another. Mm -hmm. And so the shield that Kaladin is carrying doesn't become a source of gravity. It's literally like Kaladin creates a change in its spiritual link with the arrows that are in flight. And it says, arrows, you are now attracted to this shield because you think it is the ground. Right. And that manipulation of the spiritual link, I think is the key misunderstood or not yet understood part of adhesion. That's interesting. I'm interested if that is coming from the Ars Arcanum or like a word of Brandon or something. 
I don't remember seeing that before, but that's really interesting. And then we have everything that transpires in the tower itself. For example, the Windrunners as a whole are all less knocked out. They are more conscious than the other Radiance. Yeah, they're described as kind of mumbling in their sleep and mm. like tossing and turning more than other orders. Which are like completely knocked out, basically comatose. Yeah. Compared to someone who's like sleeping and maybe like, you know, having some stirrings going on. Now, the question of why is still up in the air. I don't think we have an answer definitively for why. But one of the theories is that adhesion is still accessible to all those windrunners, that they are still linked in a way and protected in a way, insulated from the power manipulations. Yeah, I think it's unclear as to why adhesion would do that. Mm -hmm. And all of this speculation is just based on that one quote from the sibling who's saying that Kaladin might be still awake because of adhesion. And we're just kind of applying that to all of the other Windrunners. My biggest, like, question about this is Lyft. Because Lyft is also still awake. And she also has access to one of her surges, which is progression. So, like, does that mean that progression is cultivation's truest surge? And then, like... That seems weird because why are there like two pure surges and then everyone else just gets like second rate surges, I guess? (laughs) So, and I have a working theory. Again, all of this is more speculation because it's a new thing. But I think that Lyft is, okay, what you just said about progression being cultivation's surge is correct, but it can't be fully cultivation surge well nothing yeah i don't think we know that that's my point no, like I'm why saying... does she have access to progression mm-hmm. in the same way that kaladin has access to adhesion and I if it's that... because adhesion is honors true a surge then like on the other side of that coin progression would have to be cultivation's truest surge okay so if we're going to like a percentage breakdown of like where the surges fall most of them probably close to the middle but i think that progression is closest to cultivation's truest surge, like a 90% cultivation, 10% honor. Okay. But cultivation can never have a surge that is only hers. Why? Because of what Rabaniel says. This is not to say Rabaniel is correct. Yeah, I was going to say. That doesn't mean anything. Yes, I I think it does. Because of the two-step process Cultivation gives life to the surges. Honor makes them natural law. Cultivation can't... What, so like cre- cultivation created something and honor was just like, no, I'm not making your surge into law? No, 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 he did. He made progression. It's mostly cultivation surge. It's mostly of cultivation. Okay, but then that begs the question, how would honor be able to create a surge by himself if he needs cultivation to like give it life? Because I think that adhesion, the power of bonds, is honor's power. It is the thing that he is doing all the time. When he creates a surge, Uh he's using adhesion, spiritual adhesion, bond, like... 
That I is get his it. mechanism. Yeah. And honor so, is described as being the power of oaths and bonds. Exactly. Uh-huh. And so cultivation can do similar stuff. Maybe even like that was the primary way that the singers interacted with the world. And it wasn't until the humans came over mm-hmm. that they realized that another way could be done. And honor stepped in and was like, wait, I have this adhesion thing. Right. And you can make bonds. Exactly. And so I think that basically the if we take Rabaniel's as like a statement as somewhat true, as like getting at a truth that is mm-hmm. pointing in the direction of something real, the nine surges were created by cultivation and honor, progression being the most of cultivation. But the mechanism in which they did that was by honor's power, which is adhesion. Mm-hmm. So it is not quite a surge because it's not similar to the other ones, because it's just honor's surge. It's just the thing he can do. And therefore, I think that Lyft is able to use progression because progression is the one surge that can operate fully off of life light. And that, that doesn't make any sense, though, because Lyft does everything with life light. We she also uses get both of her surges. We, with yeah, we also get that confirmation in this book that she's using lifelight not stormlight all the time yeah so why again why is she able to use progression only and not her other surge the only explanation that i have is that progression is the most of cultivation i know i just think that's a weak argument i (laughs) don't disagree like i don't have a better if i had a better argument i'd make a better argument but like what i think is most true and this concept of honor's truest surge and i still think that's weird it's just a weird way that then this system that is pretty balanced suddenly becomes way super unbalanced unbalanced. yeah Yeah, like why do wind runners get to be extra special with their adhesion surge and like I don't, I, it just seems weird to me. I, I know that there because of the is all this stuff being said, but it just like doesn't fit in a way that doesn't feel right to me. Because Okay, so my only explanation is that your desire for wanting things to fit and feel right is the same desire that the Rosharians have and the same desire that like all humans have is that we want the story to make sense, but the story I, doesn't need to make sense. Nope. I'm actually going to counter that okay. and quote the Ars Arcanum and my patron, St. Chris. She points out in the Ars Arcanum, quote, On Rashar, there are considered to be 10 elements, not the traditional four or 16, depending upon local tradition, end quote. I think this is an extremely important point. The Cosmere is built on base 16 or base 4, really. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 16. The four Dawn Shards preceded right. Adonalsia. There are four Dawn Shards. There are 16 shards. There are 16 metals yeah. on. The base 4 is yes. good. Like, clearly that's an important number to the Cosmere. That is what everything is built on. So then it doesn't make any sense at all that Rashar would only have 10. And then I think we can go back to Mistborn and cite their original working formulation of 
accessible metals and powers. They thought that they had it all figured out and were like, hmm, well, these two don't really make sense, but it's fine. There's just 10. It, Yeah, that's just the way it is. And they were wrong. And so I think that there are six more surges on Rashar that like we just don't know about or haven't been identified. And then maybe that will that added complexity will sort of make adhesion make more sense yes. in the bigger picture. Okay, that that I totally agree with because I was thinking that we were getting hyper-focused on like, there has to be 10 because 10 is a nice round number. That, and I'm like, no, that's the same no, mistake. Yeah, that was no, made no, no, no. I'm saying it doesn't make sense. Which And I think it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like it does need to make sense and it doesn't, currently which either means that like it's something about we're all wrong about adhesion Mm -hmm. and like it can't be just sticking out like a store thumb like that or that the whole system is broken and actually there's a lot more (laughs) and then it would make sense that there is adhesion and progression because maybe there are also like other god powers or something and then it's not just like two random ones and then everyone else gets shafted (laughs) No, I think that this is exactly what is supposed to happen, is that we are supposed to see the separation of adhesion from the other surges, this nine-in-one division, very much mimics what happened on Mistborn about this division between, like, eight regular metals and two god metals, and that makes ten, and ten's a nice number. Yeah, and then, like, ATM, right? ATM being, like, the the big special metal that's, like, way more powerful than everything else, and they're just like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then the lost metal myths and, like, all this, the 11th metal is... So I think that really what this is about is introducing this concept to get us away from thinking about the base 10 and back into a base four which could maybe then as you said lead to 16 but there is a whole bunch of speculation if you have any comments questions theories of your own reach out on youtube reddit facebook twitter patreon i feel like this is another episode that's going to generate a lot of conversation which again is awesome comment send us messages tell us what you think as you heard we have many episodes planned some of them are going to be looking at like the folklore of all of the different mythos that we learn throughout the stormlight archive but we are continuing down the path of what happened in rhythm of war for our next few episodes so stick with us there Brooke, can you take us away? Until next time, life before death. Strength before weakness. Journey before destination. Destination.